This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. Can you dig it? I can. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. How's it going, everybody? It is, uh, I'm recording this episode a little early this week. It is, um, God, what fucking day is it? It is November 28th. So this is, uh, we got one month, about less than, little less than one month, left to go in 2021 before we kick off 2022. And it is slightly after Thanksgiving. This is on a Sunday morning. I'm recording this. Just got back from church. And I just got back into Austin yesterday morning, left about 4.30 Cleveland time yesterday. Spent a couple days in Cleveland visiting my family. We went out with some cousins. We had a great dinner. We had a lot of great visitation time with family. And, you know, I got to see a couple friends. You know, it was it was a very, very beautiful uh, couple days back home in the motherland of Cleveland, Ohio. So it was, so it's just kind of like, you know, I don't know. One, got some things coming up. Want to close out the year strong. That's why I'm recording this this early, actually, and not on the Friday that I usually record it on. Um, because I, you know, it's towards the end of the year. I think a lot of people are kind of rushing to get shit done at this point. I have basically all of the year planned out with everything I need to set in stone, everything I need, need to do. And it's going to become like a sprint of kind of the end thing. And, you know, this, this November has been the perfect example for this. I have been in a new city almost every weekend except for one in November. So I was in New York for the first weekend. I was in, in Columbus, Ohio for the third weekend. I was in Cleveland, Ohio last week. I was in Austin for two weeks. So it'll be nice to have you know, the majority of the time I'm going back to Cleveland again for Christmas from Christmas Eve up until New Year's Eve. So I'm going back for a week, which would be very nice. I plan on taking that week fully off to kind of do, you know, a bunch of things. I'll probably do some things, just some some writing and the usual things I do because I want to keep myself relatively stimulated during that time. But I want to have basically everything wrapped up before I hit on that trip, which I should. But obviously want to make sure that I'm kicking this into high gear. So that's kind of why I'm recording this now and why I am kind of pivoting towards all of this. I have some exciting announcements that I think are going to be taking place in the, uh, yes, that are going to be taking place the week after you guys hear this. I will be my state of don't read this blog.com. And I guess don't, I guess don't listen to this podcast now. So I will do the state of don't do this media next week, which I've been looking forward to a lot. I've been planning it out for a while. I'm going to totally kind of retrofit it for um, the new kind of era that this is kind of going into, which should be really exciting. I think I have a lot of exciting projects coming up, some new features of the podcast and the blog that we all want to kind of get down in this. But first, I want to kind of finish out this month of November with kind of a one last kind of, or not one last because I will record probably two or three more of these afterwards to fill out the podcast week obligation that I have with what I'm doing with my media. So want to revisit something that I haven't really visited a lot because I think 
the funny thing about writing, I've been doing this for two years now, and the funny thing for doing this for a long time is your ideas constantly morph and evolve. I think this is something that um, that Ben Shapiro has talked about this explicitly, and this is actually big coming from someone like him who has been such a prominent figure in the media for a long time is kind of just the self-awareness aspect of this. He's like, you know, he's been a, like a syndicated radio talk show host, a columnist, everything since he was like something ridiculous, like 17 or 18 years old. And he's like, yeah, like, you know, the stuff I wrote when I was really young, he's, I think he's mid thirties now, um, is like kind of crap compared to what I've written about now. I've changed so many of my ideas so many times. And I think the humbling thing about doing this podcast is I've been forced to revisit all of my really early stuff. Like this, this article I'm uh, reading and reciting is coming from April 19th of 2020. So like last April I wrote this. So it's kind of been a humbling experience going back this long to kind of see how my writing has evolved, how I am evolved, how my ideas have my ideas, excuse me, has have evolved. So I think it'll kind of be it's been an interesting process to see how it is evolving. And I think my writing is better now, but it's always kind of you know useful to go back in order to go forward as it will. So that being said, here we go. So two guys walk into a bar. Well, not really, but just go with the scenario for now. They both come from humble means. The first from Atlanta, Georgia, and the second from Cincinnati, Ohio. Both were born within five years from one another and reached the peak of their influence during the late 1960s, the most tumultuous time in, Amer in America since World War II and up until now. They both were incredibly ambitious and wanted to permanently change the world. They were in pursuit of something bigger. They knew for certain that there was something bigger. <coughs> Excuse me. The first man grew up with strict parents who believed in a system of strict physical discipline for punishment, including ones where his father made him and his siblings beat one another. This led the man to become in touch with his emotions and protective of his people. For instance, one day he and his brother were playing, and his brother slid down the banister into his grandmother, knocking her unconscious. The first man presumed her dead, she was not, thankfully, and jumped from a second-story window with the intent of committing suicide out of guilt. This guilt continued to fester, and perhaps became cemented when he snuck away from his house to watch a parade. While he was away, his grandmother suffered a heart attack and died. He blamed himself for not being there to save her. The second man grew up with high dysfunction. His father was absent, and his mother was an alcoholic who served time in prison, including a charge for grand larceny. He was mostly taken care of by multiple babysitters in his early childhood and moved to West Virginia with his aunt and uncle when he was entering into his teens. His mother later got released from prison and took charge of him again, but her attitude on parenting him never really changed all that much. The first man's guilt soon turned to a lot of anger and resentment. He resented a lot of people in power, especially people with white skin. He was a black man in the Jim Crow era South, whom he learned to despise after his parents taught him the history of race relations in America as a young boy. The second man was eventually sent away to boarding school after numerous offenses and run-ins with authority, including arson and multiple robberies. At school, he was gang-raped by other students, being mostly unable to defend himself due to his small size and lack of physically intimidating features. He was constantly beaten and threatened by the other boys. As a defense mechanism, whenever he attacked, he would play something called the, quote, insane game. He would screech, yell, and furiously lash out in order to get the boys away from him. He began to develop a reputation. As the boys became men, they began to see something to their suffering, a greater purpose that began to form itself. They did not want others to suffer as they suffered. They wanted change, and they wanted it now. They couldn't do it alone, so they recruited followers in order to enact their visions. Their stories sound incredibly similar, and probably sound similar to a lot of yours, although hopefully not the gang rape part. I'm hoping so. Childhood trauma is a motherfucker. 
However, the way we act upon that trauma and realize what it can do for us inevitably defines us. So let me tell you why by revealing the identities of two men, or of these two men, I should say. The first man is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The second man is Charles Manson. Yeesh, that's kind of awkward. For those unfamiliar and or living under a rock, I'll give you a rundown of what happened after I stopped their histories. Martin Luther King went on to enroll in Morehouse College at the age of 15 and become a minister. He channeled that frustration yelled towards racism and white people to become one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement, which involved the inclusion of white people. He used his underlying beliefs and values as, as a Christian to shape one of the greatest shifts in American culture that we've ever seen, and his ripple effects caused by his desire for civil rights changed the face and landscape of America forever. He was later assassinated in 1968 and is lauded as one of the greatest leaders and martyrs in the history of the world. Charles Manson went in and out of prison for the rest of his life and eventually moved out to California to become a musician. He was also a raging white supremacist and began to form a scary new world order in his mind. Inspired by Old Testament texts and the Beatles, believe it or not, he saw the new world, led by the changes that Dr. King and others were inciting, climaxing to an apex of a war between the races. In order to help accelerate this war, Manson gathered a group of followers and executed a series of medieval, of medieval mass murders, most notably that of actor Sharon Tate and her friends. He was sent to prison in 1972 and died in 20, 2017 at the age of 83. Now, the notion seems to be simple here. One is a tremendously great person, one is a tremendously awful person. But things like this aren't just that simple. They're too important to be simple. And it's incredibly important that we come to this realization. Dr. King also cheated on his wife like a fiend. An autopsy that was released later revealed that he was a possibly paranoid schizophrenic, and I don't really blame the guy, to be honest. And he was highly controlling towards his family. He was a heavy critique, critic of capitalism while being a quiet advocate for a more socialist-based society, which some critics have said to, be, to have been a borderline communist. Charles Manson was raised in an absolutely hellish environment. He had serious mental issues. Did the whole ripping Sharon Tate to shreds thing get the point across? But no one did anything to address them. He was frequently beaten and violently sexually assaulted. I really don't think anyone made much of an effort to help him or be a positive role model in his life. Now, before you accuse me of resurrecting the Manson family and disrupt, is disbanding civil rights, I want to make it clear that I'm not in any way hating on Martin Luther King or sympathizing with Charles Manson. Martin Luther King is one of the greatest Americans to ever live, and he deserves every bit of recognition he gets. Charles Manson is probably one of the worst Americans ever, at least of the last century, and he deserves every bit of vitriol that comes his way. However, what I do want to make clear is that it isn't black and white either. Dr. King wasn't perfect. Charles Manson didn't have a great opportunity to develop qualities that would have made him a productive member of society. But both of them thought that they were changing society for the good, even though Charles Manson's changes represent more, resemble more of Hitler and Stalin than Lincoln or Washington. And you're probably wondering why the fuck I'm even going down this road and telling you this, and it's a good question, a very important question. Perhaps one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. And it's highly important that we're able to answer it. It's great that people want to be change agents in society. It's great that people have ambition. The problem is that a lot of people have really shitty methods and ways they think about going about doing this. Dedicating yourself to your specific something bigger than yourself is essential to live a life of meaning. But what, what you pick as your cause, excuse me, that is bigger than you is more important. Why? Well... I've talked before about identity politics, and there are two kinds of them, common humanity and common enemy. One is selfless, and the other is selfish. 
Common humanity identity politics occur when you encapsulate a large group of people and lift them up together. There is one mission for all people to embark on together. This is what Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement were. The large majority of people can agree that African Americans are indeed Americans and should not have to face additional adversity to their skin color, which they have no control over. Common enemy identity politics occur when you encapsulate a smaller but still large group of people and pit them against another group. There is a mission, but it is a zero-sum game when you play it against a competing group. Someone has to win and someone has to lose. And this is what Charles Manson and the Manson family were. I don't think a lot of people are fans of a destructive and violent race war between the races to determine some kind of fucked up genetic superiority. Discovering something larger than ourselves to dedicate ourselves to, our personal something bigger, if you will, is an incredibly big part of who we are as humans. I mentioned this concept in my Joker post a couple podcasts ago. Podcasts ago, excuse me. When you don't have something larger to believe in, you can descend into chaos and nihilism, which are never good, especially when they're combined. But the big question remains. What is a, quote, good something bigger to dedicate yourself to? And the answer is I can't tell you, because it's different for every person. For all of us, it's all about trial and error, and a lot of trial and error. It's a very painful process. There are a lot of things we can and will fuck up. But don't play yourself. Everyone has this problem. Even the notable people you see on social media. Actually, check that. Especially the notable people you see on social media. And I'll give you an example. I think it's safe to say that Kanye West fits in the quote, wanting to be a change agent and change the world category. In fact, in just one interview, he compared himself to Bill Gates, Howard Hughes, Steve Jobs, Nelson Mandela, and many other of the most influential figures of the 20th century and said he was better and more important than all of them. Whether you think that's true or not is irrelevant. What matters is how he went about pursuing being better and more important than those people, a.k.a. his something bigger. Kanye West has done two interviews with British DJ and pioneer of Apple Music and Radio, Zane Lowe. They were filmed a little over six years apart, one in 2013 after the debut of his album Yeezus, and one in 2019 after the debut of his album Jesus is King. Now, if you haven't watched a Kanye interview in full, let me tell you, it's a lot. The dude is dense, man. He's got a lot of ideas and a lot of things to say. They're usually very complicated and very interwoven. You almost have to take notes to keep up with him. That's important because it forms Kanye something bigger and how it's changed over the years. In the first interview, Kanye claimed that something bigger was culture. In his words, he wanted to, quote, dedicate his entire life to making something better for the world, end quote. He wanted to build the first trillion-dollar company, start his own fashion conglomerate, and collaborate with others to, quote, crack the pavement and pave the way for others to follow him, pun intended. Nothing was wrong about the words that Kanye was saying. That's just who he is. What was wrong was his something bigger. Because in the second interview, Kanye retracts that statement. In his words, quote, I thought I was the god of culture, but really culture was my god. I was trying to have my daughter outdress Rihanna, end quote. I'm not going to lie to you, that was one of the most depressing and heartbreaking things I've ever heard at the time. This is a man who would base his entire career and existence on a bad something bigger, only to realize that it wasn't really real at all. The fallout of Kanye West explains that in greater detail and makes the story even more sobering. And I know because I experienced it firsthand. In 2016, Kanye embarked on the St. Pablo tour to promote his album, The Life of Pablo. <coughs> Excuse me. He was coming to my college, so I bought tickets with my friend, his then-girlfriend, and her friend. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. 
But there was one thing about it that directly symbolized the contrast in the two interviews. The thing that was unique about this Kanye tour was the stage. Because it really wasn't a stage. It was a platform. It was suspended over the crowd by hydraulics and floated, moved around, and tilted. We were in a basketball stadium and in normal seats, it was, and in normal seats, so it was cool, don't get me wrong. But what was more interesting was the, the dynamic underneath the stage. The mosh pit had people climbing and crawling over one another, reaching up, forming human piles, trying to get to the impossible heights to reach the stage, to reach Kanye. That was when I knew what the man's inner purpose was. To be a god. To be of such high order that people were literally stepping on one another just to get a glimpse of him. That was just something bigger, for people to see him as so cutting edge and so revolutionary that they had no choice but to see him as a deified figure. It's a lofty and precarious position to base your worth on. Additionally, it only amplifies the inevitable crash. You find out the most about a person when they lose every sense of who they are. And that's exactly what happened to Kanye later on the tour. He canceled it while in California because of mental health issues. It was later discovered that he had anxiety and was addicted to porn and sex. He went totally AWOL and moved his family to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where he still lives. I, like, I think he might. I don't know how the whole Kim thing is working out. In order to clear out the noise. Kanye's old something bigger was unsustainable. Why? Because the culture changes all the time. It's impossible to keep up with all the change and trends without losing who you are in the process. It's why we have generational differences and disconnects, and why people fade in and out of the public's good graces so often. In the second interview, Kanye discusses his new something bigger, living for his religion and, and his family. He said that he rediscovered God and now works as far as 20 years ahead of now is, quote, all for the church. He now describes wealth as having as many kids as possible and spending as much time with your family as you can. He debated quitting rap because he didn't know how it would fit into those two categories. Kanye's new something bigger is sustainable. Why? Because religion really doesn't change all that much. Christianity has been there for over 2,000 years, for example. Every major organized religion has been there for just as long, probably longer. They've helped a lot of people change their lives for the better. Your family will, in most cases, always be there for you if you do things the right way. Those are two really sustainable something biggers, if you ask me. But here's the thing. Kanye took more than 40 years to find this out. It took very long to derive something meaningful from his suffering, to form as something bigger. It's understandable to want to speed up the process. This podcast is going to dive into my thoughts on how we can do that. And this also, chiming in here, maybe be revised. This was, what, I think 20 months ago at this point. So this might be, <coughs> excuse me, something somewhat revised by this point. It involves a fundamental approach to creating your own religion. No, this isn't a typo. Oh, boy. <laughs> Based on an interwinding system of goals and habits discovering the right something bigger to pursue, and how to put that something bigger to use in terms of creating meaningful action and inertia. So, let's begin. So, who's ready to start their own religion? So, don't worry, no self-righteous near at all. But in all seriousness, I believe this is a necessary step to find out something bigger, and let me tell you why, or at least let 20 months ago Sam tell you why. <coughs> Excuse me. So I can, I sing my guts out, I, I do not sing my guts out of church, but I do sing at church, and 
quite hide my voice behind other people. So my voice is a little, a little sore this morning. So here we go. Author and th thought leader Mark Manson, not, not related to Charles, at least to the best of my knowledge, discussed this concept in his 2019 book, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. The thesis of the book is that the opposite of happiness is not sadness, but hopelessness. And though we pursue the things we want to pursue and do everything we can in order to maximize our overall feeling of personal hope. It's a mind-blowingly unorthodox concept, but one that I think holds a shit ton of water. If you don't have hope, you don't have a reason to do, well, anything really. If there's nothing good that can come from what you're doing, why do anything at all? That shit is scary as hell. That is true despair. To live a life of nothing is what we all fear, and for the exact reason Manson articulates. In order to combat this, he argues, one must form his own personal religion. Why? Well, religions unite people, both in groups and in solitude, no matter what the opinion of them you may have. However, what they unite for is more important. The purpose they unite for is not only a differentiator, it is THE differentiator. When it's not, something else forms. Something ridiculously worse forms. And to prove that, let's go back to the example at the start of this post. Or podcast, I should say. Martin Luther King was a religious man. He was a Christian and a Baptist minister. His purpose to his life in the civil rights movement was to ensure unequivocally equal freedoms for the rights of men and women of color. In order to do this, Dr. King knew it was going to be a process. He wasn't focused on the end goal as much as the steps it was going to take to get there, even though the end goal was always the purpose. However, Charles Manson also fits this description pretty well, believe it or not. He also had a purpose. His purpose to his life in the Manson family was to incite a race war to ensure white supremacy, with the catalyst being horrific and large mass slaughters executed by him and his followers. But the question is, did Manson have a religion? And the answer is no, he did not. He had a cult. He is indeed, remember, as a cult leader, if you do not know. You can see why it's important to learn the difference between the two. The definition of the word religion is, quote, causes principles or systems of beliefs held to with ardor or faith, end quote. Note that there is no definition of a higher power involved anywhere in the definition. No, you don't need one, contrary to popular belief. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. This is just what I'm saying in the post. <laughs> the definition of the word cult is, quote, a great devotion to a person, idea, movement, or work, end quote. At face value, the definitions sound almost identical, except for one thing. Religions promote devotion to the system. Cults promote devotion to the result. When you embrace the system first, the results will be accomplished if the system is up to the proper standard. When you embrace the results first, you basically give the system the finger, whip your dick out, and do whatever it takes to get those results. And this approach will most likely fail because you do not have a system to support your desired results. One is selfless, the other is selfish. One is sustainable, the other is not. Dr. King had a great system. Large, nonviolent protests that embrace common humanity identity politics in a similar, sustainable fashion to lift his people out of the position they were in order to get where they were meant to be in society, which was, which was alongside everybody else. The results followed. Many civil rights bills are put into law, and his message continues to be spread every, each and every day in the country. If you don't think where we, we are where we need to be in terms of race relations in this country, and this was before the summer of 2020 and George Floyd and all that stuff, that's your prerogative. However, there is no, do no doubt that Dr. King made the situation better because of his approach. Charles Manson had an awful system. 
brainwashing large groups of young people and going on random killing sprees to promote violence in hopes of starting a tribal race war to prove white, white superiority. The results he desired did not come to fruition because the system was awful. The race war did not happen, and minorities are now more prominent than white people in America, believe it or not. If Charles Manson had any support for his cause at all, there's no doubt that he would have made the situation worse because of that approach. Religions work, and cults don't. There are examples of working religions everywhere. America, civil rights, The Bachelor, although that one is very borderline, etc. So, what makes religions work? Mark Manson goes into six carefully calculated and researched steps, all which get more depressing and true, in my opinion, by the step. However, I'm going to define it in two, goals and habits. The definition of the word goal is, quote, the end towards which effort is being directed. The definition of habit is, quote, an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary, end quote. Ah, this thing again. Two things sound pretty damn similar but have subtle differences. But you need both, as the examples above prove, and not in the way that most people think about them. The situation that totally flipped my perspective on the two comes from an odd place. A conversation with entrepreneur and Shark Tank star Damon John and rapper and creative icon Tyler, the, no pun intended, creator. In his book Rise and Grind, which is really overrated, my, I, don't, I don't like Damon John that much, but I love Tyler, the creator, so this is just a conversation I wanted to listen to. John splits his chapters into two sections. One describing the concept and the examples he wants to portray to his readers, and one example of this in action from an outside perspective. Tyler was one of his outside perspectives, and in order to capture the context of the moment, John used a podcast format to have a natural conversation with the people he used for his book in order to get raw and unfiltered answers. John was asking Tyler about his goals. He said he wanted to be a unicorn centaur type creature with purple hair, if that means anything to you, and then got into a discussion that warped my perception of goals forever and still does, even if the book is kind of shitty. John said that he meets a lot of people that want to make a million dollars. But that's not as important as what follows. What are you going to do with that million dollars once you make it? Spend it, invest it, start a business, swim in a pool of lean, become a clean unicorn centaur-type creature with purple hair by ways of prosthetic surgery? Not many people know how to answer these questions, but they're very important questions to answer. This is why your religion must be based off of a system of both goals and habits. You need both to find your something bigger. That's what Dr. King did, and it worked out very well for him. Mark, again, not a descendant of Charles, Manson, has commented on this too. Goals without habits are self-defeating. What happens when you accomplish that goal? What's next? What are you going to continue to do to aspire to reach for something bigger? Without a continually evolving system of both a chase and a destination, we will eventually drive ourselves into a state of hopelessness, which, as we've covered, is never a good thing. Charles Manson only focused on the goals, and his lack of productive habits ultimately turned his plan to shit. This is where people need to focus. A lot of people list our goals, but few take the time to create productive habits in order to meet those goals. For the non-psychopaths out there, weight loss is a great example. You want to lose 20 pounds because you see that you're fat, out of shape, and unhealthy. That's a great goal. There are many ways, however, you could do this. You could do what most people do. Buy a gym membership, go really hard for about two weeks, not see results, and quit. You could restrict yourself from eating and or starve yourself, develop an unhealthy eating disorder, and probably gain more weight back than what you started with. You could bloodlet yourself to lose more weight inorganically, all while satisfying Satan in the process. Or, just maybe, you could buy a gym membership, clean out your pantry for healthier food, instill some self-discipline, and accept that weight loss is, indeed, a process that is done by habit. 
It is meant to be baked in an oven at 350 for 45 minutes, not microwaved on high for two. It should be obvious to all, unless you're a Satanist, not judging you at all, which the most productive habit is. Productive habits always lead to accomplished goals if you set both properly. The last step is setting them up properly so they can feed off of one another. What are you going to do now that you've accomplished that goal? The answer, make another pair of corresponding habits and goals. Maybe your goal is to lose 10 more pounds, and to do that you'll do an extra day of cardio a week for the next four weeks while substituting out two side dishes of carbs per week at dinner for two side dishes of green vegetables. You'll check all your progress in a month and see what needs to be adjusted, if anything at all. Rinse and repeat. Let's go back to that definition of religion again. A cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor or faith. This system to lose weight and improve your overall health seems to fit that definition quite nicely. How about one of those for your finances? Your family, your career? You see the trend. It is applicable to every aspect of your life, no matter what your life constitutes, including your something bigger. These interlocking systems will all aspire you to have a sense of duty about some aspect of your life while simultaneously creating a duty to become the best person you can be. Now that your religion is established, we'll move on to the next step, how to pick your something bigger. So, yeah, you formed your religion. Now, my friends, is the difficult part. What will be the point of purpose for this newfound religion? What will be your something bigger? So let's start to part two of this process with a callback to the height Lukianoff identity politics conversation. Common humanity is good, common enemy is bad. We've explained that in detail, and that concept should be ingrained by now. Awesome, you're now most of the way there. We need to frame this in a methodology of common humanity, something that lifts and betters the majority of the human population without having the intent of causing harm or ill will onto another group by force. I'll give you my definition of a just cause. It's doing something to help someone or the thing that is actually in need. It needs to make sense. Irrational social justice warriors, this applies to you too. You don't hear picket people picketing in the streets to give Bill Gates more money, damn it. We want more Asian carp in the Great Lakes, damn it. Give it. Create a secret police force to cut the balls off anyone that doesn't think Margot Robbie is attractive, damn it. We don't think these things. No, that's not how shit works. In fact, it's really not all that hard. This is going to sound pretty damn cheesy, but you need to look inside of yourself. Everything has different experiences, priorities, and values. Everyone has different experiences, priorities, and values. And guess what? This is a good thing. It means a lot of issues get a lot of attention and focus from a lot of people that care about them. It's an incredibly interesting phenomenon. However, what that means is you can't afford to be cookie cutter if you truly want to find your personal something bigger. It is your something bigger, after all. It must be personal and, personal and specifically attached to you. You must care about it enough. You did create a system of religion to enforce things like it, remember? You may as well make the apex of your religion something that pertains to you and fills your little heart up with love and joy and all that hyper-romanticized shit. But what if you still don't know? What if you didn't grow up in an impoverished household? What if you don't have a loved one affected by cancer or another vicious disease? What if you're not born with a physical disability? 
It's a legitimate question for two reasons. First, if this person hasn't been affected by any of these factors, they're probably the best position in the best position to move forward without making a difference than a person who is hindered by any of these things. It simply is a matter of process of elimination. The less large problems that burden you, the more able you are able to act on the problem you're passionate about. Second, it gives them the ability to seek clarity about finding an issue that truly moves them without being swayed by bias. You're totally objective about things of great importance, and that's a very good thing. I truly don't have a definitive answer, simply because of the fact that every one of us are different. But I think there's something we can all do that maybe can point us in the right direction. Jocko Willink is one of my personal heroes, and the greatest piece of advice I've ever heard him say on something is so mind-blowingly simple, but so mind-blowingly effective. On an episode of his podcast, Jocko Podcast, co-hosted with his friend Echo Charles, they answer a question about finding purpose and what to do when you don't know what it is. And this is his answer, quote, I don't know what my mission is. What do I do? Go help someone. End quote. Go help someone. A concept and a half. But it's so true. Providing someone with aid is a great way to bring up your overall morale. Whether that's helping an elderly woman carry groceries out to her car, or being a listening ear for a friend going through troubles in a relationship, or simply telling a child that the problem that encapsulates their whole world really isn't that big of a deal, helping someone is a great place to start. It might start something. It has for a lot of people, and it could for you too. So go help someone. Okay, so you theoretically have your something bigger. Well, not really. You have an idea for your something bigger. You have a concept, not a practice. This must be tested in order to prove that it holds water. And to ensure this, there are three questions that you need to ask your you need to answer in order to validate your something bigger. One, does it make humanity better off? Two, does it make the cause I'm trying to help better off? And three, does it make me better off? They need to be answered, and they need to be answered in that order. Why? Well, let's go back to common humanity identity politics once more. Common humanity is inherently selfless, per the definition. Therefore, you must come last, and your something bigger must come first. But you can't put yourself before the cause, either. If you put yourself before the cause, you can quickly devolve into common enemy instead of a common humanity, simply for the fact that the overwhelming majority should over outweigh those of a single person. That's what makes a democratic republic a more sustainable form of governance than a dictatorship. Ask Fidel Castro or Pol Pot, they'll tell you. Oh wait, they won't, sorry, but not really. However, you do need to be satisfied. It is your something bigger, after all. You need to feel that your time is being spent wisely and you can contribute to the best of your ability. If you feel that it isn't, you need to do something bigger. To show you how to answer the three questions, I'll put it in the frame of reference to my something bigger. My something bigger is promoting the advancement of overall well-being of special needs children and families. I've mentioned this before in posts and podcasts that I grew up in a special needs household. My sister has autism, and I grew up in an unorthodox environment compared to kids who don't have to deal and grow up with that family issue. I fucked up a lot, but I also learned a lot. One of the main things I learned about my situation specifically is how little people who don't have to deal directly with the situation know about the role people must play in going about making the best of the situation in the current fashion. I view that I am one of the people that get best fits how to get to that situation fixed because I was in the fire. I get people like me. It's a lot like being a graceful ballet dancer, an elite figure skater, or a tactical marine sniper. They put in the hours. They know. They should be the ones to affect change if they can communicate that change in a constructive fashion. 
Question number one. Does advancing the overall well-being of special needs children and make families make humanity better off? And I would argue yes. I believe the well-being of people, whether that be mental, financial, or physical, are the traits to a happy society. A society filled with irritable people who are unwell, call her daddy voice, is generally not netting, the positive for hum- netting in the positive for humankind. Just ask the French Revolution, Les Mis-era Frenchmen, or Lenin-era Russians. According to the Health Resources and Services Administration, there are 9.4 million special needs children in the United States, with 74 million children in the United States in 2020, which is from childstats.gov, Approximately 12.7% of all children born into America are born with a disability. These numbers correlate to approximately 20% of American families, as Americans contain a lot of single adults. The numbers add up. So, based off the numbers, something that affects 20% of the population of our families and nearly 13% of the children is a big deal if you play the numbers game. This situation affects a large portion of our collective American society, I think it only makes sense that we would be doing overall humanity good by lending this group of people a hand. However, we must be careful once we answer this question, simply for the fact that it's a pretty fucking big question to ask. You must be objective. You absolutely must be. That is why the questions are arranged in the way they are. It is easy to put yourself first and therefore corrupt your something bigger into some twisted pseudo-idealism that isn't truly solving a problem. Radical politicians are great at this. Most of them fail, but some don't. Hitler and Stalin didn't, and they were just the worst. And I'm not calling anyone a potentially off-brand mustache crazy person, but I am saying that they probably thought that they were benefiting humanity too. They weren't, but it's the thought that counts, right? Wrong. They played common humanity, not common enemy. They lifted up another group of people at the expense of another. For Hitler, it was anyone not of, quote, Aryan descent, although of himself he wasn't the bastard, And for Stalin, it was the kulaks, or peasants. But let's be honest. These are pretty harsh and severe examples of blatant race and classism. Most of the common enemy stuff happens in much more gray areas. A great example of a potentially good something bigger that got totally perverted was the Green New Deal. Environmentalism is a noble cause, and is, or should be, very bipartisan, even though it is looked highly upon by the liberal as a liberal position. Hell, Teddy Roosevelt, one of the most revered Republicans ever, was an environmentalist. The problem is that the Green New Deal played common enemy, not common humanity, and that's what got the pushback. The Green New Deal's common enemy was the economy. If instituted, it would have taken the American economic machine and shoved its head into a food processor. It would have skyrocketed taxes, undercut entrepreneurship for small businesses, and would have incentivized a government intrusion in every sector of the economy. I know, because unlike all the people on Twitter, I actually read the goddamn thing. Environmentalism is a good something bigger, and there are many people who are pursuing it. Good for them. But, at least for right now, the Green New Deal is just not feasible. Intent matters. But the way that you get there matters more. When you have a common enemy, you automatically ensure someone loses. When you appeal to common humanity, most to all people benefit. There are better ways to do things. We need to find them and pursue them. The other way is inefficient and it's lazy. And don't be inefficient and lazy. Question number two. Does advancing the overall well-being of special needs children and families make special needs children and families better off? I would also argue yes. The big hurdle to get over here is to see that it really does benefit the people you're trying to serve, or if it just has a lot of sex appeal. 
Remember, anyone can spray paint a pile of dog shit and say that they mine gold in their backyard. If the well-being of special needs children and families are better, that generally means that they feel better holistically. Some parts may be off here and there, and people, even in this community, still have a wide-ranging spectrum of different problems. But if we can do something to increase the majority, that will have optimistic ripple effects flow outward. Common humanity, not common enemy. For a non-me example, let's say you're trying to promote the advancement of a specific minority group in American society. Again, a noble cause that should be commended. If it's done constructively, if you do it like Dr. King and encourage black Americans to come together nonviolently as a collective to fight for equal rights, odds are you'll get somewhere. However, let's say you encourage and incite violence towards the alleged oppressor, which, ironically, I, this is so funny, we saw that like a month later. Does that really get you anywhere? I would argue not. That's only going to lead to more anger and more division. Common humanity, not common enemy. The big theme, again, is to not purposely step stepping on anyone's toes in a matter that is out of spite or vitriol. That's closer to Charles Manson, not Dr. King. Big differences, we're hopefully aware by now. Question number three. Does advancing the overall well-being of special needs children and families make me better off? And this answer is an emphatic yes. This question is probably the easiest to ask in terms of ethics in other areas, because the only party that is affected is you. When I do things to help the well-being of this community, I feel really fucking good. My energy is high, my creativity soars, my empathy widens. It's an awesome feeling. And I hope all of you can find something that does that for you. It's awesome. So, as of now, we've created our religion of interlocking goals and habits, and I've identified and validated our something bigger. Awesome. But it doesn't really mean anything without action. And that part is next. So this is the part where most people freeze, including me a lot of the time. I'm not special. I'm human and tend to not want to nut up and take the challenge when confronted with, you know, actually doing things that I set out to do. But the fact is, the action part is the easy part. You've just had a long-standing perception in your mind that it's hard. It really isn't. The step before the action is hard. Your preparation, or lack thereof, is what causes most people to stumble when they take action. Not necessarily the action itself. These steps are intended to be simple, but not always easy to do, at least when you first attempt to do them. After a while, as with most things, the perception of doing them will at least get easier. When it becomes easy, do, do something that makes it more difficult, but another topic for another po podcast for another day. I'll piggyback off of my hypothetical scenario from the last section and apply it to the steps of the action that I'm going to outline next in order to give you some realistic picture of what it could look like. The first and hardest thing that you can do to act on something bigger is be bold about expressing it. It's hard because of the name. It's something bigger. It's probably a lot bigger than a lot of people expect of something to come out of your mouth. And that's only natural. Why? Because you're the messenger. It is your something bigger. This step comes first and is the most essential because you're putting yourself in position to receive things that could potentially help you. I absolutely despise how the word manifest is used in our culture, but I guess this is kind of close to what the word means. Excuse me while I scrape my own puke off the walls. 
but it's BRB more puke. True. If you aren't vocal and expressive about your something bigger, your something bigger can never come true. Life is a team game. You need help. You must be open about presenting it so that people can come help you. But remember, it's not just about being expressive. It's about being bold. You have to have confidence and conviction. The most successful athletes, entrepreneurs, politicians, and many others got where they are because they were bold about expressing where they want to go to achieve their something bigger. Let's relate this to my personal something bigger about enhancing the welfare of special needs children and families. In order to do this, I post a lot on my social media about the benefits that this cause can bring to people. I've helped ingratiate with myself with charities that align with my cause, and have learned how these organizations function. I've taken it upon myself to host my own charity events and become leaders in groups that also promote the welfare of this community. And I haven't been shy about it. I've done my best to thoroughly express the why behind my actions. To make people meet me at where I am and my something bigger, and the value I think it provides. That means actually silly, acting silly in front of the kids when I volunteer, not giving a flying fuck about who sees me. I simply don't care. It means posting clips of Sesame Street to my social media when they show clips of a relatively new Muppet, Julia, who has autism, interacting with her non-special needs Muppet friends. It means stepping in and correcting people politely when they use the word retard to demean someone and educate them about the community they most likely unintentionally disrespected. I don't play common enemy, but I do correct them and try my best to get them to understand, even if they don't directly know. That is the power of being bold. You're putting your neck on the line and seeing where you fall with people. In short, you're being authentic. You're letting people know where you stand. Doing this ensures completion of the first step and leads directly into the second step. The second step of acting upon your something bigger is to find your tribe. Here's where the people will start crying hypocrite and saying that I violated the third don't because I bashed tribalism before. But I really haven't. I've bashed the bad parts of tribalism. The one where we call each other ists and isms on Twitter and attempt to undermine reputations on campus and bash people's frontal lobes in with homemade clubs. That, we can all agree, is bad. What is not bad, however, is the essence of community that tribes can build. Before we had fancy things like industrialization in cities and traffic lights and Starbucks, human beings never lived in groups of more about 100 people. We prefer to live in smaller communities with tight-knit bonds in order to make sure the strength of the group and the cause, and the, something bigger, survival, was strong. I would argue that we still do. People that live in New York City don't associate with everyone from New York City. They most likely have a family and a couple of good friends and leave everyone else to do their own business. Quantity can diminish quality. So your tribe is simply the people, your people with the same something bigger. You'll be surprised when you find your personal something bigger how many people have the same one or slightly different versions of it. And if you're bold in expressing yours, you will naturally come in contact with people who have the same one. Your job in the second step is to actively seek them and converse with them. Welcome them into the fold and see if you can work together to achieve your something bigger. If they're not educated in forming a religion like you are, it is your job to let them into yours and see whether they accept it or reject it. If they accept it, that means you can most likely find a great match with that person. The more of these people you can find, the more powerful your actions toward achieving momentum towards your something bigger becomes. For example, that moment became earlier in the school year. This is when I wrote this in 2020, so this is my senior year of college. My organization was that part of something bigger. Rallycap Sports was old, and we were all graduating. About half, half of the executive board didn't care much about the continuity of the process, but I and a few others did. We were afraid that the group would fizzle out after we left and would damage the cause of our collective something bigger. We needed to expand our tribe. 
So I was bold about expressing my something bigger. I sold the fuck out of the cause to people at events and other places where the message could be spread. I talked to hundreds of people and got a lot to sign up, along with my other board members who helped. They were great. Eventually, we didn't get very many people. But the people we did get were all young and eager and fun and hungry to achieve the advancement of our something bigger. They're great too. Just like that, our tribe was expanded, and a new one would be there to hold it down when we left. That's the good tribalism. No clubs intended. The tipping point for this step is to see if your goals and values are aligned, like I had alluded to earlier. If they are, that's awesome. If not, dump them immediately. Especially if they violate ethics or other personal codes of conduct. Those usually don't end up well. It's a very hard and sometimes tedious process to vet that severely, but it's worth, worth it once you get the right people, and you eventually will. The third step is osmosis. The term is mostly used in science to describe cells, or something. I'm a blogger and thought it sounded cool, okay? Kick rocks if you don't think so, but not really. Please keep listening. We're almost done, I promise. Basically, what this part means is your tribe coming together after you've decided they're a good fit for a collective something bigger and gelling becoming a team, a unit, and a tribe. This involves several processes. You must compromise. You must lose your ego. You must put the something bigger of the group ahead of your personal something bigger if the group serves a better purpose. Only when a tribe can successfully diffuse these things can they truly solidify their bond and begin working towards their eventual goals and paths to achievement. For me, this was encapsulating and bonding with the new members you recruited to my, to my group. I would rib them, joke with them, encourage them to do it back. But I would also ask about their families, their grades, their schooling, if they needed help on anything, etc. Eventually, the inevitable new group awkwardness faded. Walls came down. They let me in and I did the same. We formed great interlocking relationships. We worked very well together. We understood each other's roles and flourished off of them. Whenever I was out of line, there were always someone telling me to fix it. I obliged because I knew we were on the same train of our collective something bigger. And a busted egomaniacal wheel can throw the train from the tracks and cause every single person to die in a hellish dream and a hellish death. The fourth step is collective outward expression. This is a lot like my first step. You must be bold and you must be authentic. Although this time it will be different. This time you're a tribe, not an individual. People tend to listen to groups more than people. It's just our nature. When you're promoting a good something bigger as a group, Odds are you have a chance to attract more people simply because of the numbers you've amassed. The reason for instituting this step is to create a following and a relatively large amount of traction for your cause. People start paying attention. They start listening. And therefore, through this action, you can communicate more effectively. You can reach more people, and more people will start reaching out to you. Your tribe grows, and your effectiveness as a tribe will also grow if you continue to let people in. The way we did this in my scenario was expanding our reach through the network of our new tribe members. A lot of them were freshmen, so the natural place to look was in the dorms, a tribe itself, albeit for a different reason. Though these networks were able to pull more tribe members in and create a bigger community of people to spread our message and get the ball rolling faster towards something bigger, they fit the bill, and, were more than happy to and we were more than happy to take them. They have proven to be great, just like the original tribe members were. The fifth and final step is to form a group-based group religion of goals and habits based on the religion you formed individually earlier on. This is where the action culminates and you start to advance and progress towards something, accomplishing things to advance the collective something bigger. It's actually less hard than you would think. Shit, you've already gone this far. Might as well take it one more step. If, you've already, if you are all on the same page, and you should be, if you aren't, repeat steps two through four, 
This should actually be quite a fun process. It's exciting to think about contributing to your something bigger, especially within this group of people you would genuinely enjoy being around. In my case, this actually was something I stepped back from and watched from afar. As we transitioned from fall to spring semester, the old executive board decided best to let a new, the new executive board, the tribe members we recruited, take the reins and start putting their stamp on the organization. They were taking the reins, after all. It wouldn't make sense to not give them any practice first. We were going to get there if, going to be there if needed, but we didn't think we would have to do much, because good tribes shouldn't have to. Our thoughts came to fruition. The new executive board did great, and they were able to come together as a tribe and form a system of accountability where each member of not just the board, but the other members, had a contributing role in an interlocking religion of goals and habits. The group evolved. They got better. The collective something bigger was advanced because of their dedication, because that is what a good religion does. Oh, and one last thing. You actually have to do the goals and habits. If you don't, that kind of defeats the purpose. Discipline is key. Doing is key. If you do these things, you should be fine. Your something bigger will prosper, and you will as well. Pursuing your something bigger is not meant to be a walk in the park. It's hard to find. It's even harder to live up to. However, the rewards that come with this statement are plentiful. If you are inherently choosing to live selfishly, or you are inherently choosing to live selfishly, excuse me, you are putting your ego in the back seat in favor of advancing something that needs your attention more. You are putting yourself in position to receive constructive abundance, the ones that will grant you true fulfillment, not just the ones that stuffs you with hookers and sugar and weed. It's about having a sense of duty towards advancing something that needs to be advanced. But advancing to what exactly? That's really the one question we have yet to answer, and it might not be the one you were expecting. The most likely answer is that you will not solve the problem that your something bigger is affected by. I will not live to see children with disabilities and their families achieve maximum well-being. I don't believe autism will be cured, at least in my lifetime. The same with racism, the same with a lot of things. So what's the point? Why do we pursue these things? Because they should be pursued. That's the answer. Why do we need justification and validation? Sometimes, we just need to do good for the sake of doing good. More good being done means more advancement and more people being helped. Maybe we can solve those problems one day. But for now, choosing to do good for good's sake is the right way to accelerate that process. Just don't take the Charles Manson approach. Okay, everybody, that was a lot. So thank you guys for listening and tuning in. As always, again, it was Thanksgiving this past week. I'm very, very grateful to everyone who listens to this podcast. I know it's not a lot of you, but I hope I'm not wasting your time. And I hope that you guys are getting something out of this because I like doing it. And I think it's a good thing for me to do. It helps me. I hope it helps you. So happy Thanksgiving again. Let's make the last month of the year great. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you guys next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?